Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. My name is Sylvan, and I will be your host. Today, we are here in Kham, in the beautiful canton of Souk, and have a chat with Ariel Luddy. He is a successful businessman and nowadays also investor. Ariel has a CV that is hard to believe. He was a professional stuntman and jumped out of an airplane more than 4,000 times. He became a millionaire after selling stocks of a tech company he worked for and then later on had to borrow money from his friends for investing everything he had into a company he was leading as CEO. This company eventually became a huge success and was sold for more than $1.5 billion. We're going to talk about all of this and much more in today's episode of the Swisspreneur Show. There's also lots of additional content available on our social media channels, so make sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Before we get started with the episode, I would like to introduce you to SBB Startup. If you think that your company is a good fit for the Swiss Railways, get in touch with them or learn more about their startup programs at spbstartup.com. Ariel, thank you so much for taking the time and for meeting us here for the Swisspreneur episode. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Great, thanks for having me. I would like to focus on your early life first. It was basically marked by sports, a lot of parachuting, a longer stay in the United States, but also the constant search for challenges. And I wonder, how did you choose your ways, which way you wanted to follow and what was your motivation back in the, in the young days? Well, first, there was never a grand plan. So things just happen. Mm-hmm. Actually, in many cases in my professional life as well. So uh, my main threat was actually, uh, you know, playing hockey. So I like that. I grew up beside a hockey place. So I started at six years and, and, and I did that until I was 32. So that gave me a little bit of uh, a grounding uh, because of school and stuff. Uh, after I did my mature, uh, you know, when I was 19 or 20 years old, you know, you work so hard to get there and then you have it and then you don't know what's know, next. What's next. Yeah. So it was kind of kind of difficult. I was a bit lost there. And uh, yeah, I just tried, just wanted to get away, to be honest. So I was looking for ways to, you know, to go to the US. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how I ended up there. And then after you, you came back from the US, you also decided to study physics at the ETH, something that you didn't really have too much passion for it or a big talent for it. So you really seem to to look for this constant challenge. What was the sort of the motivation for you to actually go go there and study something that you knew, hey, this will be a big challenge for me? Why why did you choose to study physics? Yeah, good question. Well, first I I tried while I was still working uh, as a parachute instructor, I tried to get into ATH for sports uh, diploma there. But I failed because I didn't prepare for the test. So I think I failed in dancing or or swimming or something. No, but uh, physics, I was interested in physics. I I read science fiction since a little boy until now. I read two, three science fiction books a week, I would say, or at least a month. So starting with cartoons up to now, quite some some deep stuff. Mm -hmm. So I like the metaphysics stuff. 
you know the, the thing behind it uh, not so much the the the, the you know, the traditional physics with all the math with it. But I thought it's quite a good challenge to, to, to study the, the subject I actually was the least good at and the, with the lowest grade. So uh, it's interesting. Usually people will go the other way around, right? Yeah, but uh, yeah, that's, that's not me. Yeah. Uh, was this also triggered by sports that you were looking for this constant challenge and also sort of trying to bring yourself to the next level? Or where did that come from? Yeah, I wanted to try it out and see if I can make it. Okay. And you also need a, a very good portion of self-confidence in order to be able, you know, to also fail in things that you're maybe not good at and then stand up again and try something new where you might succeed afterwards. Where did you get the self-confidence from to, to actually also pursue and handle the, the failures if, if the plan didn't work out? Yeah, I think it's like sports. I mean, you play games, some you win, some you lose. When you lose one, it's gone. On to the you next. Try to learn the lessons and then you play the next game. So it was the same thing. So I, I even tried to enter the second semester directly because I, the, I came back in the middle of the year. Uh, so I just, I just tried it. No challenge too small to be tackled. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And then after your, your physics studies, um, you also got your first job at IBM as a programmer. And I would also like to talk about that. This was sort of your first job and also the first one that you ever applied to. There was no other jobs that you applied to afterwards. How important was this first job sort of as a first step in your professional career? You know, after a few years working as a parachute instructor, which was a great time, I learned so much there. Uh, I learned how to stand up in front of people and teach them. I had to teach, I had courses, you know, 24 people and, uh, for two weeks. And I had to teach aerodynamics and, and law, meteorology and all these thing, different things. Before, I could not even stand up and speak. You know, I was, you don't learn that. So that taught me how to do this convincingly in front of a group of people. Uh, and the other thing is, managing people in moments they think they're going to die you know uh, you know in the plane up there the, the door opens uh, and we had all different types of students you know young people old people male female fat uh, athletic everything so it was quite interesting I had to instill into them the trust and the confidence that i'll take care of them that it's okay they're going to be okay Sometimes I had to help out a little bit, but so it was very good. But after a few years, and we learned, you know, we were the first ones doing tandems. We were the first ones doing accelerated free fall, all these new methodologies. So that was interesting. But intellectually, then after a while, it, it was not st uh, stimulating anymore. It was becoming repetitive. While reading a newspaper on a Sunday, actually, a condition for me to get the job when I called, when I stopped the physics studies and I called the boss down there at the Paragentra. I said, I need, I need a job, can I come? I said, yes, but every second Sunday you have to uh, fuel planes to relieve somebody. So, very boring job. But during that time I was read, reading the NZZ, looking at job ads, and I saw that one from IBM. It was a special program for college dropouts like an accelerated career path mm -hmm. and I applied for that 
And then I went up there and we went through all the assessments and IQ tests and all that stuff. And I had so much fun doing this. Finally, you know, <laughs> I was absolutely not nervous. So that's why the results were incredible. Apparently they told me, not because I'm smart. It's just, it, for me, it was a game. I had fun. Uh, and then they, they offered me the job. Yeah. And what did you take away from, from the job that you actually did there? I think developing software was something that you were also pretty passionate about during your studies, one of your favorite subjects, right? Yeah, that's the only thing I really liked uh, during the physics studies. We had Apple IIs, you know, tiny little screens. Mm -hmm. But we, we, we had programming, as it was called, was just a minor subject. But I spent 80% 80, 80 of the time because I liked it. And then during parachentra time, parachuting time, I did a little bit. I had a, a VC20 Commodore, one of the early consumer PCs. For me, it was like a dream come true. You know, somebody's paying me money for to do something that I, I like. Same with parachuting you know, and uh, skydiving. And, and, you know, you go in there and it's quiet and... And you have your drinks there, and they let you read manuals, attend courses. And so it was, it was heaven, a complete change of lifestyle. But and also a more stimulating environment intellectually, I can imagine. Yeah, especially at the beginning. I mean, after a while, the pace is so slow. You know, we were running from you know early days in the morning to late at night, uh, six days a week. And there it's nine to five, and you sit and you sip a coffee. <laughs> uh, once I even got up in front of everybody, there was this, we had these big room offices, and the boss sat in the corner, and I stood up and said, I'm going crazy, give me work. You know, I think he, he, he never heard that. <laughs> and uh, then I saw the guy sitting beside me. He's doing this job for 30 years. And... Uh, so they gave me some more work, but I, I decided I had, I had to leave. It, this is, was just too too slow. That was the time IBM was at its peak. Right. Leaving IBM, there was a, there was a scandal. There was, you don't do that. You know? uh, but I got headhunted away, uh, and uh, I accepted that job. And then also later on, um, I jumped forward a bit. Um, in 1996, you also took a new job that was not straight from IBM, but after also some consulting and Oracle gigs, you ended up at Broad Vision and enterprise e-commerce software, mm. where you built the Europe business for them. And I think you scaled it from zero to 150 million in revenue within six years, which is itself an impressive achievement. And I wonder what made you accept this offer, because this was just a company from the US um, trying to enter the European market. You left your safe job before at IBM. People probably called you nuts. What led you to, to join Broadvision? Yeah, it's true. I was at Oracle eight years. Oracle was very small when I joined. There were 15 people. Uh, and nobody knew who's going to win. There are many other in that space. But we were just better on the sales marketing side, not on the product. So in the end, I was running uh, sales and marketing in Switzerland. I had a safe job. I was Mr. Database. And, but after 11 releases of the product, to get excited again with release 12 or 13, mm -hmm. attending the same exhibitions in Switzerland every year, it was like Groundhog Day. And I usually leave a job when 
I don't feel the the energy anymore. Especially if you're in sales, uh, mm -hmm. you cannot you cannot be successful. The energy for the product, or yes. what kind of energy? Energy product for the team for the company, right. but mostly product related as mm -hmm. well. So uh, I left, and people were really felt sorry for me and thought I was crazy. Uh, the second time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some of them are hired, they're still there, you know, I, I couldn't imagine doing that. But anyway, uh, so I joined a company that had no customers worldwide. And uh, e-commerce was really at the very beginning, April 96. You still had to convince people that the internet is going to be important, but then also that you can do business there. Hard to imagine nowadays, right? Nowadays, yeah, but that, that, was, that was really crazy. So, so I joined. Uh, actually, my ex-ex boss at Oracle introduced me there. Uh, I went once to the opera in my life because of frequent flyer miles from United, and I met him again. Uh, so uh, sometimes it's it's luck these things and, and no no plan. But I really liked e-commerce. We had some first demos at Oracle about e-commerce, and I just felt I didn't know. Uh, like with relational databases, I felt with e-commerce, this is this is going to be big. What gave you this particular feeling? Because I have no idea. Okay, so you just felt this is something special. This might be this is, becoming big. This is going to change the world. Yeah. So, so, and th the main reason I, I left Oracle uh, was they did not allow me let me work abroad. I really, I mean, I went a lot to the U.S. with Swiss customers, you know, to meet Larry Allison and, and customer visits. But I wanted to work internationally, but they didn't want to let me out of Switzerland. So I said, you know, I, I leave. So with Broad Vision, they gave me two countries first, Switzerland and Austria, and then Italy, and then the whole of Europe. And yeah, it was tough. But the first three years, you know, uh, Everything was flat, also the stock price of the company. We were already public in 96 there. And then things took off. You know, it was evangelism from the very beginning. I like, I like stuff where you have to evangelize people, like relational databases, all these old guys, they, they go for network databases, what they knew, let them know this is the new thing. The same thing with broad vision, um, with e-commerce or internet. And, uh, yeah, then we started to win one customer after the other, and then we started to build out the teams in the different countries. And after three years, about it, 150 million. And then the nuclear winter internet came, you know, the whole thing, uh, 2000, 2001. I had to do seven rounds of layoffs uh, because everything imploded. Company value went from zero almost to 27 billion. Uh, and then down to 100 million or something, and yeah. later they took him off the off the, the stock exchange. So it was like a roller coaster ride, but but it was a fun time. Learned a lot, made my first few millions. Being on uh, on uh, E Trade, I remember selling some stocks mm -hmm. after three years before they were flat. And all of a sudden, I had a million in the bank account. It was, it was really <laughs> surreal, surreal moment there. No, so I did. I did that. The reason why I left was uh, after six uh, rounds of layoffs, tearing down things, letting good people go. I just couldn't do this anymore. That's not the fun part of the job. 
yeah, and the tour bus, you don't need me, I'm too expensive. You know, if you if you want to do this, then uh, I want to I wanna move on. I would like to dig deeper into a couple topics that you just mentioned. Uh, the first one where you said you like to you like to work on things where you still need to sort of educate or evangelize people. Why is that particularly interesting to you? Because you can still capture a big chunk of the market because you are sort of, you have a certain first mover advantage or why is that the most interesting for you? No, the good thing is, it's the same with blockchain right now. If, if you read two pages more than the other, then you're an expert. You know? <laughs> so if something is new, you know, you, you can be at the front of, of innovation there. So relational databases, I remember, you know, I read the, the manuals and then I gave courses to all these big guys. Then came Client Surfer, I gave net, network courses, I had no clue about these things. I, I was drawing diagrams and then presented it. You just have to know a little bit more uh, and then uh, uh, then you can actually teach someone. So I like to learn, uh, I like to learn new things. And e-commerce was the same thing and later on, with the cloud business and 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 with with Hammer Team right now, it's always new, innovative topics. Mm -hmm. And then you also had a very strong sales focus for the role that you had to actually build something from scratch. You had the product from the states, uh, but you had no market traction in in Europe. Basically, where do you start if you get uh, set up with such a task? Because it's a very sales and marketing driven game. I'm a, I'm a product guy, I was a developer. So for me, sales is like the lowest form of life. Right? Uh, but they converted me at Oracle to become a sales because one of the largest customers threw out the Oracle sales guy and told Oracle, we need somebody who actually understands something mm -hmm. and not just a price list. So they made me go and was, was SPG, UBS now and talk to those guys and they started to trust me because they knew what I was talking about. And then I made a sale for about 4 million, you know, which I thought this was huge, you know. I mean, for them it was nothing. They even asked me, is this a, an annual fee or is it one-time fee? And I was so surprised, I said, it's, it's a one-time fee, which it was. Should have said, it's a yearly fee. So, and then once once you're on the other side of, of the light and the dark side, then it's hard to get back. Yeah. And, uh, but I think it's, it was, the, you know, the new way of selling at that time. This, these were the 80s, the late 80s, right? Uh, before salespeople were mostly alcoholic, uh, older guys in, in fancy suits, and, uh, and they had to be good at smooth talking. These, these times were are gone for a long time now. So you have to actually add value to these processes. And there was one one of these representative of this new way of selling or salesman was actually more a consultant with some commercial uh, aspect. Mm -hmm. But the main thing is you have to be able to, to, they have to trust you. They have to trust you that you don't screw up their, their career, that they don't lose their job uh, by selecting your product. Uh, and that you can do with, with a certain personality and with the, the technical know-how and, and this whole package made it. That's how I looked for sales then later on, you know. So I, I took a lot of pre-sales or consultants uh, who had the, the, pers the personality to, like, to be able to engage with people and they all became the best sales guys. 
does this method of selling still apply today or has it changed no, again? No, it's still the same. Okay. Even more so. Can you also give us an example of how you actually delivered value to the customer? Yeah, I mean, the value is that you actually have technical discussions. You know, what's best? Why, why this? What's wrong with the old way? How should you implement this? In which steps? Uh, you can talk about uh, competitive products, why, why this is better than the others, and not just saying hello to everybody, uh, you know, getting the coffee. So even later, much later, in the, you know, 2004 and later at Hybris, you know, I went to customers sometimes. Once I flew to Hong Kong by myself, I was CEO already to A.S. Watson. A.S. Watson was the largest health and beauty retailer in the world. And they own Rossmann's and perfumeries and all this stuff. You know all these brands here as well. So I, I arrived there. I stayed there only one day. I didn't have time. But I said, I didn't want to waste the time of my sales guy, so I go myself. So I was there. And IBM was here with 12 people for the same... Thing. So they, they invited two or three suppliers. Mm. IBM has 12 people. There was the sales guy. One person responds for this product, that product, that product, the consulting guy, the whatever guy, you know. And I was there alone. And the lady in charge of this, uh, I remember, uh, ex-Olympic rower, uh, she could not believe it. Uh, you know, so where's the rest? You know, it's just me. I'm here alone. <laughs> And in the end, we won the deal, a multi-million dollar deal. Wow. What made the difference from your perspective? Yeah, because they first, they always told us in all the com companies where I was working in, they said, you actually love your job. And they could feel that. You, you know, the, I, the IBM guys are just doing their jobs. You love your jobs. There's emotion in there. There's conviction in there. Uh, plus, you know more than one thing, you know. The, that's why these guys, they had no clue about anything. They only know one slice. And from the next slice, they had no clue. So there was no overall picture, same on the management side. Mm -hmm. and, and they really liked that. And still today, some of these companies still operate the same way. Yeah. And then you, you said before you may, uh, sold some of your stocks already in 1999 from Broadvision. Mm -hmm. uh, I would like to take it back there. And that sort of made you a millionaire overnight, basically. Within a minute, yeah. Within, Within a, a minute, second. yes. <laughs> and then after you, you left Broadvision, after the six years that you've been there, I mean, you were basically a self-made man. You, I think you also bought a boat and started golfing. You could have just enjoyed life and just settled down and sort of enjoyed yeah, it a bit. it was not enough. It was altogether six, seven million. And UBS managed to lose half of it uh, <laughs> in, the, in the stock uh, uh, crash that we had. So with three million, you cannot, you cannot. Right. But you could still have a pretty decent life. <laughs> yeah, that's but true. <laughs> you didn't seem to be satisfied anyway. No. Um, what kept you going? Why, why didn't you just say, hey, um, let's take it a bit easier now. What kept you going? Why did you want to start new things and get involved in other projects? Yes. Yeah, I did start to play golf. I remember I did buy um, a boat. No, it's it's just the same as intellectually. I mean, how, how many golf games can you play before you, you know? And then I started thinking while playing golf. So what were the issues with Broadvision? We were at the right time, at the right place with Broadvision in 1996. We had a f finished application to do e-commerce because 
the company actually built this for the, the network computer of Oracle, which then flopped. Um, that's an old time. But they had an application who can work in a bi-directional network. So the internet came up, so all of a sudden they had a solution already mm -hmm. that they actually wanted to use with this video on demand and the network computer of Larry Ellison. So we were way ahead of anybody else by chance. But then they gave it away. You know, they made the wrong strategic decisions. They got arrogant. You know, the CEO was on Forbes, the, the master of the universe in this picture and so on. They built the house. We never moved in. We were, we were out of money before that. They built the house in Silicon Valley with corporate colors for, I don't know, billions, you know. Uh, they made arrogance also, I, I know have all the answers, also from a technology point of view. So mm -hmm. they stuck to all technology like Corba and C++. And they said Java is just a fad that's going to go away. And so, so many mistakes, which was a reason later I wanted to be CEO. So I can prove to myself I can do it better. Mm -hmm. And uh, they made so many mistakes and that's why the whole thing tanked then. So actually it was a, a press release of a, a competitor who actually copied our product, but used modern technology. They even had to pay hundred million in penalties for doing so, but still they killed us uh, with the press release of American Airlines that they're gonna switch from us to them. They never did, I think, mm -hmm. because they couldn't get it working, the competitor's product, but the damage to the stock was, was crazy. And then it, it all went downhill. So uh, uh, challenges, yeah, I tried to, to analyze while I was playing golf, that's how I came to that, said, what, what was wrong with, with broad vision? So there was many strategic things, personality issues and so on. Plus also from a product point of view, it was too complicated to implement. You know, the A.S. Watson deal, you know, we sold license maybe for a couple of millions and Accenture made a product for 30 million around it with services because it was so complicated to implement. Then I said, didn't we have a solution that was so easy to use and implement? I think this is the new way of delivering applications, which was actually Salesforce.com. So we were using the CRM system in the cloud. We were probably the biggest customer at that time of Salesforce. They said, this is really cool stuff. I think this is the way how you're going to consume enterprise applications in the future and get away from all these complexities of implementation projects. And that's when I called my boss, ex-boss of Broadvision, because there was no uh, bad feelings. I said, please introduce me to the CEO of Salesforce, to Mark Benioff. And he did. So I met Mark in Ireland, that's that 15 people, Salesforce was 15 people in Europe, in a call center in Ireland, in a castle on top, I remember, first floor in a castle, because it was cheaper than having offices in Dublin, with a huge garden and a, a golf course, which I never played on, I never had time afterwards. So I talked to Mark Benioff, and after two hours I had the job of running Europe. And I loved that again, because it was evangelism. CRM was boring. It's a, it's a well-known process, uh, but uh, having customer data stored in the cloud in, on, a, on a server in the U.S., and uh, because at that time there was only one data center in the U.S., uh, uh, was an incredible challenge, selling the, 
which I did then later on. I sold it to Zurich Insurance, to the Swiss Post, German Post, French Post. They had 10 lawyers. Never, ever we're going to put customer data there. And we signed them all up. So this this was the challenge I liked. And I, I picked Salesforce because of the problems we had with Broadvision and because I saw the ease of use while using it myself as a sales uh, leader. So there was sort of an improvement in, in, in product terms that also led you to sort of a confidence that this will be uh, like yeah, sort of the, an improvement. Yeah, the ease of use of consumption, of implementing and using an enterprise application because compared to Salesforce was Siebel. Uh, Tom Siebel actually left Oracle, built Siebel to a multi-billion dollar company. Real arrogant asshole. And uh, his projects, again, were multi-million dollar projects. Every installation of this thing. Well, we did the same thing, maybe a bit less, for an absolute fraction, magnitude cheaper way, because it was SaaS, you know? And that showed me, yeah, this is like broad vision, just in CRM. Um, we, we need something like this. Uh, that's that's the way to consume applications in the future. And that was Salesforce. Yeah. What have you actually talked about in the two-hour chat with Mark Benioff? Because usually you don't just get a job within two hours. <laughs> what was the sort of the topics that you discussed there that, first of all, made you very interested in, in the role that was offered to you to also, I think later you were also responsible for Europe again. And also from the other side, what made Salesforce uh, being very interested in you because you had a successful track record, I can imagine. Yeah, I mean, Salesforce at that time on a global basis was very small. There was one little office in San Francisco. So they felt honored that one of these big uh, representatives of this big software company, you know, actually is joining us. You know, this is totally different ballgame than today, obviously. Plus, I knew what I was talking about. Uh, I've done it uh, before. I've proven that I've done it with Broadvision uh, in Europe. And his strategy did not work. He wanted to sell the stuff purely by... First, just by credit card, self-service. So people sign up and use it. Yeah. yeah, he got some, but not enough. So then he started telesales center in Dublin, calling people that worked for very small enterprises. But he realized if he wants to, to sell to big, large corporations, then he needs a direct sales team that's actually in, in, in the markets. And that's for this strategy to actually really grow big with large tickets. Uh, he, he needed somebody like me, and, and that's why he gave me the job. So I just told him what I thought about SaaS, and it wasn't that much. He just wanted to get the feeling uh, of me, and you know, I think he was talking about yoga and his dog and whatever. So also the, the connection on a personal level was very important, right? Yeah, corporate culture was very big there. He's like a big baby still, still, still now, so, uh, and that really nice guy. And... Uh, he had the references, you know, from my, my bosses, ex-boss. One of his largest clients said he's, that he did well, even though I quit already. Mm -hmm. uh, so all that together made, made... Then I had another interview with with a guy. A guy there was running the call center, and then I had the job. Yeah. Mm. And then he also sort of went through the IPO with Salesforce. Can you walk us through a bit how that felt like? Because that's also a pretty big milestone to walk through with a company, right? Yeah, with Broadvision, when I joined, we just had the IPO. I was at the IPO party, but I was a nobody there. I was just a newcomer. So with, uh, with Salesforce, that was about two years, two and a half years after I started, was the IPO. 
So I was part of the roadshow, you know, uh, for in, in Europe. Mm-hmm. We also went to the to the World Economic Forum, I think, which was interesting. Yeah, to see that and and talk to the investors or potential investors, you know, helped me later when we, when I actually did the roadshow with Hybris as well. It was interesting for me to to be on that level, you know, see how the big boys uh, are doing this. So it was, it was was fun. Was there a key moment or a key takeaway that you might be able to share with us? What you then also learned to apply to Hybris afterwards, your your company that we'll talk about in a second. Yeah, it's the whole thing that we as as Europeans we we, we don't do not understand sales and marketing, uh, especially the Swiss. We have a, a DNA that's full of inferiority complex. Uh, we're a small country. We speak funny English, we speak funny German, we have no natural resources, you know, and all that stuff. So uh, uh, we have great technicians, but we do not know how to sell. When we have a product, the, the first thing is we excuse ourselves, what is not working and blah, blah, blah. The Americans, when they have this, they talk about, you know, global global domination and how, whatever. Yeah, That's what I learned from Larry Ellison, he's, he's one of them, Oracle CEO, from Pi Hong Chen, brothers and same guy, and especially from Mark Benioff. You know. I mean, they made out of nothing a media event. Uh, out of an API, they made a world event. You know, So uh, the, the gap between reality and product and, and message is Grand Canyon-wide. Mm-hmm. And in Switzerland, we do it the other way around. Okay. So what, what that tried to apply, especially then with hybrids and, and, and in the Hammer team is taking the best practice or the, the best world of the best of both worlds. So European engineering, because to be honest, some of the engineering in the US is crap, right. uh, even Silicon Valley or not. And the best, not the exaggerated one, but the best of American sales and marketing. And that combination is, is incredible. Mm-hmm. So you, you have a little bit of gap, you manage the gap, um, but, but on engineering, always compared, compared at BMW, because Hybris was in Munich with a Chrysler in the US, you know, terrible, terrible thing. You just close the door of a Beamer and close the door of a Chrysler, you know. Uh, it maybe looks nice, look under the hood, the engine, you know, they don't care about the engine, they just put a nice little feature again on top. And European engineering is all about, yes, design, but make sure that the engine is efficient and this and that. And that's how we build our product as well. Mm-hmm. It's not just features, 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 it's looking at the whole thing. And then also if you have engineers in Europe, but sales and marketing in the US, you also close the gap or at least get it Close down a little bit compared to having both of them in the U.S. No, we had sales and marketing here as well. Uh, the, the main, the main sales and marketing. It's just the, not the having the people in the U.S. It's it's doing sales and marketing like Americans, with the American aggressiveness, just a little bit toned down. You know. So if so, if you have a great car, we still had a gap because we purposely we put a gap there. So we had a supercar. We talked about the supercar. We had a car, you know. But the gap is not here. Chrysler and supercar. Exactly. And it, was that helpful in terms of selling the, the actual product? Yeah, I mean, uh, because uh, sometimes then you have to deliver. Right. Uh, that's when you wake up. So 
in our case, we were always able to manage to close the gap and then move forward with the message. And, and is that a danger that American companies face that they cannot close the gap and then oh, yeah. go out of business? Look at all these startups. I mean, that's, this is all hot air. I've seen so many pictures. There's nothing. These are slides and the business plan that's doing like this and smooth talkers like crazy. It's even so hard for us Europeans. They talk so smooth. You actually do believe them, you know? So it's, it's really difficult. But the culture shock is also the other way around. An American investor talking to a Swiss or European CEO, he is so scared of what he's saying because he's, he's much closer to the truth than Americans. So he's, he's expecting American drama, you know? Right. Huh? And then there is this, this, this Swiss horror story he's actually hearing because he's talking about things that do not work. Uh, he's not, uh, he's not exaggerating uh, on future results and so on. So they, especially in the early days, they did not understand how to take this. You know? And you have to talk in a certain way uh, to these American men. So it's, it's both ways that they actually have to, have to it's a culture shock. Right? Is the American part of doing sales and marketing, is that something from your personal experience and perspective that, for example, Swiss founders or Swiss teams can learn, or is it better to fully outsource it or get professional help by the Americans to get to that level? No, we don't, you don't need the Americans for that. You just need the American experience, you know, so, uh, but you cannot learn it. Uh, it's, uh, that's something, for instance, we in the Hammer team, we bring to the table. We help mm -hmm. them to put the right messaging, positioning there, the right, Pricing as well. Swiss, you know, they price, well, I cannot ask for more than this. And the Americans have 10 times the price and they get away with it, you know. Yeah. So we help them there, you know. But they have to build these capabilities internally. Uh, but the hard part is actually the product. Uh, but as you know, look at the example of, of, of Oracle. Uh, not always the best product wins. Mm -hmm. So Oracle had the worst product of all them. Ingress, Sybase, Informix, you name it. They were all bigger, better, more features. But we were better in sales and marketing. So just imagine, so you can win with a bad product, good sales and marketing. Just imagine you have a good product and good sales and marketing. Yeah. And that's the sweet spot that you're aiming at, right? Then you also left Salesforce um, after the IPO, uh, mainly due to uh, cultural differences or the culture that was sort of influenced in a negative way by a company that got acquired by Salesforce and then sort of added a not-so-nice touch in terms of culture. It's, it's not an acquisition. Remember I talked about Siebel and Salesforce? Right. So Tom Siebel was Oracle because he, and he left because he hated Larry Ellison, the CEO of, of Oracle. Built Siebel, got really big, multi-billion dollar company. And Salesforce killed that company with our CRM system because it was cloud and agile. So he had to sell. And he, had, he had to sell back to his old boss which almost killed him to do that, personally, his pride, because he's an egomaniac, right? So he sold the company to, to Oracle, and then many people were redundant there. So then Salesforce, and I think, well, he, he succeeded, but Salesforce then took many of the Siebel guys who left Oracle and uh, employed them uh, in uh, Salesforce. And they brought this very, very aggressive, for me, too much aggressive uh, culture into into this yoga kumbaya company, 
which was good in a little bit way, you know, but not to that extreme. Sure. And, and uh, yeah, I, did, I didn't like that. How would you describe the culture that you're looking for in startups that you invest, but also in, in companies that you would work for? The culture, my, my mantra, especially at Highbury's where I was in charge, not of culture, you cannot create culture, but where you can say what you want, is, is very simple. No bullshit, no politics. So I, that's the worst part of large organization is politics. Oracle is an incredible political uh, organization. Any large organization is, right? But as I've seen it at Oracle, uh, the other ones were a bit smaller. So uh, I fired people if they violate no bullshit. They, they tell me what I, they think I want here, or they cover up the, the things, you know, whatever. Do you have an example for this? Yeah, one guy, uh, you know, promised deals that, that didn't happen and, and we fired him. Uh, I, f I fired actually more people uh, in terms of politics. You know, especially salespeople feel very safe in an organization when they're successful mm -hmm. and they think they can get away with everything. So I actually fired the best sales manager at Hybris, actually who was running US, mm -hmm. just because he was like a virus. Uh, infecting everybody the way he behaved. And if I had let him get away with it, because people all realize it, uh, then everything would have imploded, I, I believe. And uh, I fired him and he was very surprised. What did he do? He's just arrogant asshole, treated his people badly, treated the partners badly. So he was not the kind of representative I wanted to have for my company. The same with the guy was, was running the UK, uh, fired him. Actually, he, he started to cry and he came back and worked as a normal sales because he liked, he wanted to stay. And people loved it. Not as, well, yeah, he got it now, but just, yes, that's the right thing to do. Yeah. You know? And no bullshit, no politics. It's with all my company. I think that's a very simple, but also very hard thing to actually implement. You have to be very strict and clear. And you have also, to you have to lead by example. Yeah. You know, like if you get the sales guy away with it because he's bringing so much revenue, we could say, yeah, come on, he's bringing twenty million or whatever the number is every year. But that's where it starts. Yeah. And you have to take the consequences yeah, to also. How can I ask somebody? Look, if you are at the water cooler in the cafeteria and one guy starts to bitch, and that tell him. How should you behave? You should not even quietly just listen to him. You should actually do something about it and say, if you don't like it, leave or whatever. But not being part of this, this, this virus. And, uh, and if you want that, then you have to start from the top. Mm -hmm. We also sort of mentioned hybrids a couple of times. Uh, your biggest success story. We'll cover the exact story, how you actually got there in the, in the second episode but you eventually sold the company to SAP for 1.5 billion US dollars, which, which is an incredibly massive success. And I would like to walk you through the day that you actually got the money transfer. I think you described it in, in a couple uh, interviews that you gave as surreal moment. So when you got this three digit million amount transferred to your, to your bank account, what were you thinking? Like, was there any any like personal satisfaction or 
how did you feel back in the moment when you actually got this huge amount of money from your successful entrepreneurial career uh, as CEO and investor in Hybris? Uh, you also have to see the way to get there. In almost three bankruptcies, I had so much debt. Uh, I put all my, my, my millions into the company from Salesforce and Broadvision. My, my friends gave me money and I owed them, you know, so there was desperation for years and we didn't know if it works. So the first step actually was when, when we sold part of, of the company to a VC, when I was able to, to uh, pay back all these debts, that was 2011. That was, I think, even the, the, the even the better moment, and I promised them a hundred percent win on what they gave me. Mm -hmm. So in some cases, I actually had paperbacks with money, <laughs> and gave them, uh, you know, double the, the amount of money that they gave me, yeah, and gave it back to them. So I had no debts anymore. Uh, and this was a more important moment for me. That was felt more freeing. Yeah, they, because this was starting really to drag it down. Plus, then you, because of the stat sale, I had a, again a few million in the bank account, so I felt safe. Uh, so that was the more liberating moment, to be honest, and also the satisfaction. You know, that from now on it cannot be a disaster anymore. But that was uh, that seven seven years, you know, seven years. And then, but the the other one, the you know, the exit itself. I remember I was standing in front of Globus in Zurich, just going in the online banking. And then and first was nothing, and then and then it was there. I said, fuck. It was a holy fuck, holy shit moment, that, that's for sure. Did they even have enough zeros to actually display the, the amount in your e-banking? Yeah, but they actually I called them as well uh, first and uh, yeah, they were not used to that kind of transaction, that's for sure. Yeah. And then how, how did that feel to you personally? I mean, you had your personal story, basically. You emerged from parachuting stuntman to successful entrepreneur with millions in your bank account. How did that feel to you? Like a very special moment or also sort of a symbolic like story that there is always a way if you believe in it? Or how, how did that feel for you? No, the only thing I felt was like freedom, you know, because uh, I, you always dependent money-wise on somebody. If it's not family, then it's at the banks, because they own they own your building more or less or your house. So nobody could get me, nobody could touch me. Without, uh, and also, I, I distributed a lot of money to my family, you know, but well. We also distribute the 26 million to the employees of our money, uh, the founders' money that, that actually was ours, uh, which changed our other lives. I don't know. How, we created over 100 millionaires. That's crazy. And uh, I got some really nice letters uh, uh, there. Uh, yeah, and also the family. All of a sudden, I don't know. It was Christmas, and I got them together and got each of them a letter. Mm -hmm. It is how much and give some advice, what to do or not to do, like not listening to anybody, just give it to a bank or whatever. What was your, like, did you give them any investment advice? No, or? no, I didn't want, I, didn't, I said, I don't want to know what you do with the money. Okay. 
but don't come back for any more. Uh, uh, and this and this and this, you know, don't listen to this friend of the uncle who has a great idea with 50% profit, you know. And yeah, that was, was, was nice. When looking back at your career path and your project, there's sort of a red line from my perspective, which is always that you took calculated risks. That was sort of the, the red line through everything that you basically did. You, you were also like you accepted um, a, a cutback in salary. You had upsides of shares, for example. How did you personal, personally evaluate the, the risks and rewards that you wanted to take in order to get to this calculated risks? Yeah, this is just gut feel and stupidity. <laughs> so sometimes I was just lucky, but I followed my heart. Is it interesting? Mm -hmm. Is my heart in there? Uh, then I did it. And you feel it if, if that's the case, right? Yeah. And also if it's not the case anymore. Yeah, and that's the worst thing is for somebody is to stay in a job that they don't really like. I mean, some, some people don't have a choice, but I think everybody has a choice actually. Uh, and uh, I've seen so many bitter people and that never want to look back and say, I should have, I should, I don't want to have, I should have. So I just do it, you know. This is also a bit of a philosophic part, I would say, about personal happiness, I guess. So how is your personal happiness determined from, from your perspective? I mean, job is obviously one point that you do something that you love and are enthusiastic about. What are other key parts from your perspective to have a fulfilled life? Yeah, I mean, in everybody's life, that there are certain years where the job is more or less the whole life. So I had that as well. Uh, Was that a good setup? Yeah, I lived in airplanes, traveling the the world. You know, uh, yeah, it, it had its place. Some people do it the whole life. I, I did it for a few years. But if you organize yourself, actually, I had less and less to do. The, the bigger we got at hybrids, for instance, mm -hmm. because we have more and more people doing stuff. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you should have something on the side that you love, as a beside family, as uh, you know, sports or whatever. So, uh, I went, I went into uh, when I stopped skydiving. Actually, at hybrid, when I was at hybrids, I stopped sometimes. Uh, then I started to do. Uh, uh, aerobatic flying mm -hmm. as, as, a, as a hobby. Why did you stop skydiving? Because this seemed to be a big passion of yours. Yeah, but every passion gets old after a while. So I've done it 4,000 times. Uh, I was on the top of the sport professionally. Yes. Now not having that much time, it actually gets dangerous. Things like that when, when you do it. And the sport continues to develop. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just time to stop. I never officially stopped. I still have my rig here. It's actually packed. It will be ready to go. Uh, it's still, it's hard to say I stopped. So, uh, so you could go any minute if you wanted yeah, to. Yeah, my, my license is not valid, but I could do a, a, an exam jump. So it's still there, but I stopped about 2006, I think. Um, also because it, I only had a short amount of time to to invest in private times. So that's why golfing. I'm a golf member since that time. Remember, mm -hmm. Broad Vision. I think I haven't golfed for 15 years. 
only played the membership fee, I paid the membership fee. It just takes half a day out of, sure. you know, you can't do it. Yeah. But quickly go to the airport, do a flight for half an hour, you know, plus minus 10, or plus 10 Gs, minus five Gs, you're totally gone. <laughs> uh, and then you can do something else. Yes. And so there's no time for, for skydiving. You have to focus, I like to focus on one thing and get good at it, yeah. then doing a little thing. And nowadays you focus your time, not fully, but most of also on the Hammer Team Digital, where you're invested in more than 20 uh, startups uh, from the IT sector. And you're also very persistent in calling yourself the anti-venture uh, capitalist, where you also say you invest in teams and in people instead of ideas. Where did this sort of statement or this investment philosophy come from? Yeah, it's... Of course, I invest in ideas as well. So it's it's team, market, and product, or technology. No, but VCs. I've seen so many VCs. You know, they there are MBAs guys, McKinsey type guys, and they go at it from a mathematical approach, more or less economical approach. What they learned in school, so they have their spreadsheets and uh, they, they play their models and whatever. Mm-hmm. I've never built the model. I faked enough models myself not to trust the models. I've seen that on, on our IPO, we were just tweaking numbers that they didn't they didn't understand what it means doing tweaking the model. Mm-hmm. They just wanted to, to see the result so that the model fits. But the model did not fit reality, so they were so numbers driven. I could not believe it. No, I, I, I go totally the opposite. I look at to understand what they're doing, what they're trying to achieve, product market fit is their market. To understand what they want to solve, right. and look at the team, look at the product. If they, most of them have already a product or a POC at least, mm-hmm. and their business plans and all that stuff. I don't even look at them because first they are going to change them anyway together with them and second they are fake. It's it's all hockey stick, you know, two years, millions of revenue. So that's a bit different. Plus we want to, we want to be really smart money. Mm -hmm. The VCs promise you so much support and this network and blah, 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 but it's actually only overhead because you have to do reporting and they send some operational partner who has no clue about what you're doing. And I have, I hired a couple of guys from Hybris who have good knowledge about certain topics, product management, sales operations, marketing. Mm-hmm. Personally, my what I have done at Hybris is sales, sales, not marketing. I'm not a good marketer, but sales. Mm-hmm. And uh, corporate marketing, yes, but not the rest. And uh, product strategy. So we have certain disciplines we're good at, it's like a menu, and uh, the portfolio companies can select from the menu. We also had two of your investments, uh, Chris from Beekeeper and Dorian from Squirrel in, in our show too, and they both spoke very highly of the professional and really valuable support that you provided them with. So I think this is a very uh, good statement also from the portfolio companies that they're really eager and, and also happy with the support that you provide yeah, them with. I told them to say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're actually, you mentioned the three different factors like team, market, and product. Um, maybe you can also go a bit more into detail about what you what is exactly triggering you uh, for finding a case interesting. 
So with the team, obviously not the number crunching McKinsey consultants. What is interesting from a team perspective for you? I think it's enthusiasm, energy, the belief in what they're doing. Mm -hmm. I think that's the key part. And then it's also background, you know, schools and education and so on. But this is burning here, you know, so that's that's the biggest part. Is there any way that you, you, you probably just talk to them and you realize that with your gut feeling also? Is there any other way that you assess that? You have to okay. meet the people. Yeah. Right. Then let's look at the market. What are you looking for at the, at the market of a startup company? The reason why I put up Hammer Team was actually to bring this American sales and marketing together with mostly Swiss engineers, right? To help them Americanize our approach a little bit. That's right. what I said before. So uh, uh, I also limited myself clearly to software and in software to B2B software, enterprise software. The, the other people got some lots of money all of a sudden. They started investing in biotech. They think I'm an expert in biotech and real estate and restaurants and whatever. Usually they fail, right? So I only do that, what I'm good at, what I've done in the past. So that limits the scope already a little bit. But that also means I can understand it easier, you know, and I can actually help them. So on the market side, so it's not consumer software, for instance. I had no clue how to sell consumer software. Uh, on the market for an enterprise software, obviously look at the size of the market, but also at the, the problem they're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. And is it an urgent problem? How do you assess that if it's an urgent problem? No, the urgent problem means, is it a nice to have or is it a must have? Is it something, yeah, that's actually cool. Once we have some time and resources, we're actually going to look at this. Mm -hmm. Or, God, I need to have this because I have such a problem on that can save costs. I have, I can get so much more revenue. I need this. Right. Yeah. Salesforce, if you would switch off Salesforce in a company, that would be a revolution. Yeah. The thing would implode. Yeah. So processes that are, are must have, not nice to have. And some of the companies, even some you were talking about, you know, they were first more in the nice to have uh, area and you, you find customers and so on. But we, we actually switched or extended their footprint into, into must-have processes as well. But I can still imagine it's pretty difficult to fully understand when you're actually moving to this must-have direction. Or you can also sort of lie to yourself a bit and think, oh yeah, we're a must-have, but then, I don't know, two or three years down the road, you realize, oh, yeah. oh actually, no, we were just a, a nice-to-have. Happened, yeah. But you have to realize it. What is the problem you have? and then start to pivot or extend your footprint as a, as a solution. Is this mainly driven by, by customer feedback, like by revenue, for example, because you have fast growing revenue and that sort of shows you that this is a, an urgent problem that you're solving or what would be yeah, a good indicator? Yeah, could be la lack of inbounds. So nobody's searching for this. Uh, long sales cycles get pushed out again and again because it has no priority number one or two. Mm -hmm. So, so on, on real feedback, so you just have to gather all these data points and make a decision what to change. What would be a good sales cycle in the B2B area where you say, okay, this is definitely more towards the must-have instead of the nice-to-have? That depends on the complexity of the solution. Makes sense. We have, we have companies that have a sales cycle of three months mm -hmm. because it's a simple 
a simple sale, you know. And others have up to 18 months. You know, okay. Take a long time. Sometimes also the investment doesn't actually play out as planned. Um, I think recently there was Balloon, where you also were president of the board for a certain time uh, in the media. And I would like to also talk about that case, about what you actually took away from it. There were pretty prominent investors behind it. Why didn't the case uh, work out? What, what is your assessment on, on that case? Yeah, I, I still believe in the case on the, B, the B2B side, having a industry-specific marketplace, a many-to-many -many marketplace where all the, the buyers and the sellers can meet. Mm -hmm. uh, but we underestimated the, the slow momentum and the lack of innovative push in the sectors we were going after mostly like exhibitors uh, and so on. So uh, uh, this is a, an industry that maybe needs a few more years to understand that they have to move away or, or combine, you know, like an example, uh, the toys industry. So in the past, how did buyers and sellers meet? How does Toys R Us, although they're out of business because they didn't digitize enough, how does Toys R Us, the, the, the category manager for, for children's games, find something real new, cool toy that somebody built in Korea? Mm -hmm. So still up to today, today, they meet at the Nuremberger Toy Show, which is once a year, right? And that's when these things are happening. Yes. Or uh, the same like aviation, they do it in Farnborough or this and that, you know. And I think this is a very uh, unproductive way of finding supply and demand or innovation and demand. And uh, so we thought it's the right time to disrupt this and actually provide a digital way that they can find each other. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the category match on the toys, mm -hmm. keep staying with toys, actually has on this marketplace the, the chance to discover new cool things, you know, and even have a, then a private showroom and they can communicate, they can even close the transaction. And a, a new newcomer with a new product somewhere out in the boonies doesn't have to spend, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars to go to a small, tiny little booth to the Nuremberger Messe. They can actually have their, their show, showcase on the digital platform and market the buyers there. Uh, but we underestimated the, the inertia of those people, you know, uh, offering these conferences and exhibitions. Some were a bit faster and we had some success, but others are really, really slow. Plus we made mistakes on the business model. First, we wanted to have this always as a joint venture and do a revenue share for these industry specific marketplaces. We realized that you know that the joint venture means we have the cost and they have the revenue. That's how it turned out. Uh, and then we, we became a normal technology provider with this annual subscription fee, and this this then worked a little bit better. But uh, sometimes the right strategy is not good enough, you know, and the market has to be ready. So product market fit uh, was theoretically. Logically, intellectually, it was a no-brainer for all of these people to do it, mm -hmm. but they didn't do it. 
And that was the reason. And that's sometimes really hard to predict, right? You only find out if you are actually, actually executing it. I've been so many times walking away from customers who said no, said, you know, it's so stupid. They need this, you know, yes. not in balloon, but also in, in hybrids, whatever. Mm -hmm. Why don't they get it? You know, that, that saves their lives, you know, or their business. Uh, but they don't do it for whatever reason. And yeah. uh, that's what's the problem with balloon. And maybe you, you're just too early, right? I think we were too early, yeah. so, uh, and uh, yeah, and maybe two, three years later, the whole thing looked different. Same thing with Broadvision, we were three, three years too early, three, three years nothing happened because we had to convince them, you know, internet is important, e-commerce is important yeah. and so on. But when you're actually in this situation, it's not a, an easy decision to decide if you continue to go down that path or if you actually kill the whole thing and say, hey, we are too early or it's not working out, how do you make this decision? Because you've been in these situations several times. Yeah, I mean, I mean, with Balloon, I was not operationally involved, so you only see some, some right. points of, of the whole thing. But at Hybris, you know, we, usually we, we survived month after month. It's usually a money thing. You either run out of money or out of time. Uh, so we always found a way to survive another month, but depends also on the cost structure. So we actually had quite a high cost structure, and uh, uh, so we had to come to a, to a, to a decision. And being half public company balloon with over a thousand shareholders, you know, it's much more difficult than having just the founders or a small small team of shareholders. So you have. There's some regulatory and, uh, and governance issues you have to follow on some, some legal procedures. Mm -hmm. And if you see that the, the money, you know, will not uh, give you enough runway, you you have to, from a legal point of view, to take some, some hard decisions. You know? Is that also set up that you would recommend other startups to change or to not have, to prefer to have a smaller amount of investors? Yeah, that it's actually the normal case, uh, but with Balloon, they, they, uh, that was many years ago, they started to sell these shares almost publicly, so it was a tradable asset, and uh, this made things a little bit complicated, so that's definitely not the right way to do it. Now I would also like to look into the future. You have identified trends over and over again successfully. Where do you see up and coming trends. I mean, you're heavily invested into the B2B IT sector. What do you see trends in general coming up um, that you think are interesting to, to watch out for? Well, first I can only talk about B2B software trends there, because again, I have no clue about the rest. I, I'm as, my opinion is as much value as anybody else who is not an expert. In, in, in software, it's no surprise, you know, the, so blockchain is going to be important, uh, artificial intelligence is, is important. So there are many areas uh, where we can actually implement now new digitized processes which will change quite the way we're going to live and work in the future. So uh, I'm just going to have a, a talk tomorrow at the Kalkweil in Luzern about digitalization. Why is it happening now? You know, and, uh, uh, I'm going to tell them it's like a perfect storm of, of four or five instruments that are now so, they, they play these instruments now so well, they're so mature that you can start co 
creating something new, like a symphony. So that's industrialization, automation. That's about one technology, quantum leap. Uh, electricity, computers, in a broad sense, and, and the internet. Mm -hmm. So all these have developed in such a way that all of a sudden new business models or new processes are possible, which was not before. So cloud computing or, or a, like Dropbox or Box, cloud storage. Yes. Why is it a viable business? Because you have internet, everybody's internet, the bandwidth is there and cloud storage is so cheap. I remember, you know, we had to code the year in two digits, not four in order to save storage and memory, right? So that made new business possible before it would have been too slow or too expensive or autonomous driving, all of a sudden you have robotics and sensors that are so smart. You have artificial intelligence to see where you are. Uh, you have the network to actually in real time talk to that device that's autonomously driving and so on. So they need many, many of these instruments to, 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 to work and so on. So these, these things have come up to this perfect storm and that's why things are starting to happen now. Uh, electricity, blockchain, you know, uh, it needs internet, it needs cheap storage, and it needs cheap electricity because uh, uh, to, to confirm a transaction the way, uh, with, uh, the, way the, the protocol they're using, they're, they're solving these mathematical problems that use incredible lot of computer power, which is electricity, would not be possible if the electricity prices of 10 years ago, you know. Uh, and so on. So everything is is going a certain way. So now you can you can all of a sudden rethink ideas you maybe had ten years ago, uh, which were not possible for many technical reasons. Uh, they may be possible now, or new new ideas that you have. And so we'll see uh, how the, the creative combination of these instruments are what they're going to build. There's an exciting future ahead of us. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, I mean, especially our, my, my generation. I mean, we had a hard life. Huh? <laughs> no, if, just think, I was born 1959, how much we had to learn, you know, and adapt and digest as a generation with all these technology advances. Uh, I mean, that's crazy, you know. So many things completely change. I mean, you guys, you know, you, you were born in a totally different, different uh, world. Or your kids, they will take all these things totally for granted. They will not even understand that there are people that have issues working on a computer or talking to a tablet. That also keeps you young, right? Yeah, I love it. I mean, I, I always had gadgets in all my life. So I have boxes of boxes of old technology assets I bought, it's like a museum from this Commodore 20 to the first Palm Pilots and iPods and I have so many things. The, the, the first Sony robot dog and... Uh, but, but you're right. Now I have 23 companies and they each teach me some new topic. So because of Mobile Bridge, I had to, I had to dive into blockchain. I just did an investment with Serial 3D. So I have to look into... Uh, field uh, theory and uh, virtual reality. Now I'm doing one with, with uh, uh, computer vision for, uh, for ground handling improvements for airports. And 
yeah, whatever. Squirrel, you know, beekeeper. So, so that, that's really cool. So it's not just one topic. I will never be an expert in each of them, but I have to have a certain depth in each of those topics in order to provide value to those companies. You already talked about your favorite gadgets. I would also like to talk about additional resources that you can recommend to our listeners. Are there any books, websites, blogs, or also podcasts that you can recommend to our listeners? Yeah, I'm not a real fan uh, fan of these books. Everybody who has done nothing is writing a book. <laughs> How to get rich fast, you know, whatever. How to lose weight. Uh, no, it's just be open and uh, and pick things. I I tried to die, and the, the biggest problem is, and that's how, what I stopped is this information overflow. You, you know, you have these subscriptions; they start stacking up either physically or digitally, and you get such a bad feeling that you're not reading them. You know, and that's it's a real. It really slows you actually down. So I don't care if I miss editions of things that I read. I try to have a broad spectrum. I like to have certain things physically as paper. So I have to blink because we need, you need to know what the, you know, it's interesting. It takes five minutes to read at a breakfast and has some, some, some funny stories. I read the NZZ mm -hmm. digitally or on paper. Uh, one, one publication I really like for many, many years is Wired. I really love the, the write-up, especially the long reads that they do right now. I have the New York Times uh, that I read digitally. I have the FT sometimes. Uh, and the rest, I just read what comes in. So I have certain blogs that are, uh, that are or websites more or less, that are topic-specific, like blockchain or crypto-specific. Actually, sometimes I funnel, when there's a new topic I have to learn, then I try to find out who are the, the opinion leaders. And so I dig in, but when I move to the next topic, I don't care that much about it anymore. So it really depends on which topic I am, and then I'm reading different things. But the, the base is, is the ones. And we, uh, Wired always points you in directions where you want to go deeper as well. So that's sort of your entry gate, and then you take it from there. Yeah, the, I, I have reading this thing for, I don't know, since it existed. It went out of business, came back, and well, I'm always followed it. So. Sounds good. Ariel, thank you so much for taking the time for our first episode. It was a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you. And thank you for answering the questions. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the content, please leave us a five-star rating at Apple Podcasts. We would highly appreciate your support. Next week, we're back with a new episode of The Swisspreneur Show and also back with Arya Ludi, where we talk about the successful turnaround of Hybris, his crazy exit to SAP for more than $1.5 billion, and some rapid-fire questions. Make sure to tune in again next week for an all-new episode of The Swisspreneur Show.